Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Queens Podcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Hey, you guys. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Killer Queens. Whoop, 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 whoop. Mm, that was lackluster. <laughs> I didn't want to, like, blow your blow your little eardrum off. <laughs> yeah, next time get a real megaphone or don't do it at all. <laughs> I know, that's what I like to call quiet excitement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Reasonable levels. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, we have got a monster of a case today. Yeah. Monster of a case in the sense that, like, it's a big one. <laughs> like Torella's monster dong. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that reminds me of... You don't know what I'm going to say, do you? I thought I did, but really I don't... go anywhere, couldn't it? It reminds me of my dad wrote a porno. Oh, okay. <laughs> when he um, talks about Belinda wearing the monster prick. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny because the word prick doesn't imply monster. No. And it's also not a s- sexy way to, anyway. No. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know Usually anything about. You like call a jerk a prick or something. Yes, Rocky Flintstone. It's not that he's known for his, even though that's the his whole point. Sexual prowess. Yeah. Yeah. He thinks the word cervix is attractive, apparently. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, if you haven't listened to that, you should go listen to it because it is friggin' hilarious. It is so funny. It's so good. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. No, no. Today we're here to talk about Maura Murray. Yeah. And uh, thank you to Madison for writing it up. Yes, and this was suggested by a lot of people. Yes, it was. So we want to thank Cheyenne or Daniel Pasby, Sullivan Norris, Jordan Smith Youngblood, Charlotte B., Samantha Dorenzo, Danielle Groff, Joni Portwood, Brady Rose Clark, Samantha, and Laura Smith Haverly mm-hmm. for suggesting it. I feel like you might have said Daniel Pasby. Pasby. Did I? Yeah. It's Danielle. Danielle. Yeah. I'm sorry. Just in case, is I. I you know, I thought in my mind it's I said it correctly, but Danielle Pasby, excuse me. Yeah. And we do have some trigger warnings. We've got drinking and driving and possible murder. Yes. On Monday, February 9th, 2004, 21-year-old University of Massachusetts nursing student Maura Murray crashed her vehicle into a snowbank in Haverhill, New Hampshire. A neighbor called 911 while another neighbor stopped to help offer help. Maura, appearing uninjured, declined help and the neighbor drove off. Approximately seven minutes later, when police arrived, Mara had just disappeared. 
She has never been seen or heard from since. 18 years later, the disappearance of Maura Murray has turned into one of the greatest debated mysteries in the world of true crime. There are countless theories, questions, and arguments that all ultimately end in two very important questions. Where was Maura driving that night and where is she now? I mean, I know. It's just wild, like in that amount of time, like. And like being, never being heard from or seen ever again in 18 years. Ever again. I have never wanted to disappear. And we'll talk about, you know, there are theories. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I don't think. I couldn't like slip into Mm-mm. disappearance, you know? Mm-mm. But of course, you know, that's that's one theory. There are more. But. Yeah. It seems like it would take a lot of work. Like, I think it would, yeah. you know, you'd have to do a lot of planning ahead and stuff. I don't know. Yeah, it's crazy. Before we get into today's case, we just want to let you know that um, we've got other episodes releasing this week over on our Patreon. And um, Patreon is our membership where you can get extra episodes and you can help support the show. Tomorrow, our murder mixtape drops. So we always do an extra case on Wednesdays and we call it the murder mixtape. And this is covering the murders of Philip and Sarah Gehring. Hmm. Absolutely heartbreaking case. Yes. Oh my gosh. This it's really bad. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it, it does involve child murder. So we do want to let you guys know about that. Yes. Just in case. But if you do want to get that episode, you can head over to the Patreon. Yeah. And then Friday, we have a docuseries show that we cover all the docuseries and it's called Doc Jams. And we are doing our last installment of the TV show on Netflix called Heist. And that show tells the stories of ordinary people who almost get away with extraordinary heists. So this week is part two of The Bourbon King. Jeez. Oh my gosh. Happy Gate. Happy Gate. Happy Van Winkle. Happy Van Winkle. Who has heard of such? I know. I mean, it's thousands of dollars of bourbon that was stolen. Like multiple, like tens of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. Like it's crazy. There's like, some of these bottles were going for like $1,000 a piece or more. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. And then mm-hmm. somebody stole like... Cases and cases. Yeah. Maybe one. Them. Maybe 15. Maybe. Maybe I took two. Maybe I took... Maybe I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like a whole thing. And um, this guy, Toby, kind of gets blamed for it. There's a bunch of steroids and guns and all kind of stuff. Like he just... He kind of he kind of went off the rails there. Yes. Yeah. And then, of course, on Sunday, we drop our weekly catch-up episode, which we refer to, um, it's called the T to the fourth power Y, but when you spell it all out, it looks like titty, so that's what we call it. (laughs) But that is just where we go off the rails, and we just talk about our lives and what we did that week, and salad dressing, and you just never know. Yeah, centipedes, tornadoes, uh, you never know where it's going to go. Never know. So head to patreon.com slash killerqueenspod to join in on the fun. And if you want to make sure that you get, um, we send a weekly email out that tells you like exactly what episodes are dropping that week. It also has our discount codes for our ads. So if you are one that skips over the ads, but you want to get discounts on stuff, definitely sign up for our emails. Um, And we also include like a 90s moment in it. So it's super fun. So go to killerqueens.link slash email to join the list and be the first to know about all the fun happenings. Yeah. So let's just get into it. Let's get into the case. Yeah. All right. So who is Maura Murray? Maura was born on May 4th, 1982 in Brockton, Massachusetts to Fred and Lori Murray. Fred was a medical technician and Lori was a nurse. 
At the age of six, Fred and Lori divorced, leaving the five Murray children leaving, living primarily with Lori. So this is when Mara was six. Freddie Jr., Kathleen, Julie, Mara, and Curtis spent their childhood in nearby Hanson. It was a small town, so the siblings spent much of their time together entertaining themselves by, as older sister Julie said, quote, giving each other shit, which is <laughs> really the only way to do it. <laughs> it's entertaining. It is entertaining. Um, last night, just to piss Ben off, Jesse picked up one of his Pokemon cards and licked it. Oh. And Ben cried. Gosh. And we laughed our asses. We were like trying not to let everybody see us laughing, but we were just like, what is happening here? <laughs> like he did it just to be mean. And it worked. And it did work. Yeah. Like, yeah. God, these kids. Yeah. <laughs> so I can imagine with five kids, there was a lot of giving each other shit going around. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mara had to adapt quickly to being the second youngest by developing a quick wit to deal with her older siblings. She was a smart girl from a young age, routinely beating both Freddie Jr. and Julie in chess. It wasn't long before Mora's astounding athletic ability began to show itself. In elementary school, she set a record for the 1.5-mile run, not only beating her female classmates, but all of the boys as well. And Dang, the girl could run. I know. In fact, her record set the fastest time of anyone who had ever passed through the school system at that time. Wow. That's pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. I think if I was being chased by the scream guy with a knife in his hand, I would be like, you know what? I'm tired. So, well, yeah, I would die instantly just from that. I mean, because it's just a lot of running and it's a whole thing. It's like, like, are you really, you want me to run? Uh, I know. Well, and I fall down a lot. Yeah, that's true. You got, I fell down the other day. How do you just fall down? I was in my slippers. And they're kind of a platform slipper because of who I am as a person. Sure. And I was going to check the mail and I backed up and I didn't realize that the sidewalk was kind of raised up and I just went you right down, down and took it. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> How embarrassing. I know nobody's, well, that's not true. Somebody did. You live it. in Nashville. Somebody saw it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're like, are you okay? And I was like, I'm fine. I don't want to talk about it. I'm fine. It just like literally, you know, like if you step back and you don't realize some things there, you just like, I just literally just like went down on my, my tuchus, but everything was fine. I catch myself. I don't know. I, I haven't fallen in a very long time. That's great for you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm just saying, I know what would happen if I had to run. Yeah, for sure. You would fall down. Yes. Mora was described as kind, smart, funny, and someone who could bring excitement and life to any situation. She had a beautiful smile and big dimples that could light up rooms. When she started her freshman year at Whitman Hanson Regional High School, she was quick to follow in Julie's footsteps by joining the track and cross-country teams. She even made the varsity basketball team as a freshman. In her sophomore year, she qualified for the U.S. Nationals in track and finished 33rd in the country in the two-mile race. Goodness. Lord of mercy. Just such athletic ability. It's amazing. Yeah, but she wasn't just athletic. She was also, like, super, super, super smart. She took multiple advancement placement classes. She was in the Latin Club, National Honor Society. She tutored other kids, including her siblings. Mora formed a tight-knit group of friends at school that grew closer throughout their four years as well. 
They often competed with each other for high grades and top of the class. Mara ended up scoring a 1420 out of 1600 on her SATs. Wow. Yeah. I did not take the SATs. No, I didn't either. Well, I, I feel like a lot of people, I don't know where, I guess if you're going to like an Ivy League school or something, you know, a big, big school, you would have to take the SATs. But yeah. we just did the ACTs. Yeah. I still didn't take those either because I was like, I know my ass is not going to college. You didn't take the ACTs? Nope. Oh, I didn't know that. Did not. Nope. Never did. Wow. I know. Interesting. It's like you don't know me at all. I know. I just I just figured everybody took it. Nope. Mm. Cool. Good for you. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mora's father, Fred, was very involved with his children. He would pick up Mora and Julie from school and take them to practices and meets. And Julie said he never missed a race. Fred was especially supportive of the girls being so active as he was an avid hiker and runner. Mara and her siblings loved to join their father on weekend trips to the mountains for hiking and camping, her favorite area being in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. Though the two girls often tested each other's patience, like most sisters, Julie loved having a built-in best friend. She and Mara would always sit next to each other on the bus rides to and from track meets where they'd gossip and talk strategy. Julie graduated two years before her sister and decided to attend West Point, a four-year military academy in New York. Mara would travel from Massachusetts to West Point to watch Julie's track meets, and Julie often told her sister how much she loved attending the school. When it was time for Mara to graduate, she held tons of athletic records and at the high school and finished fourth in her class. I mean, goodness. I know. I feel like you usually either have time for like extreme academics or extreme athletics, not both, but she did both. She did both. Yeah. And mm-hmm. did both like exceedingly well. Yes. That's so crazy to me. Mm-hmm. In the second grade, I declined to join the swim team because I wanted to make sure I had enough time for my homework. So <laughs> there's that. Well, you know what? It's tough at that age, especially, I think, but it was good that you had your priorities straight. Yeah. I mean, what if, what if I didn't have enough time to study for the spelling bee? I know. And look at where it got you. Yeah. I have a, I have a trophy. You have two trophies. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. Worth it. Spell ambulance right now. <laughs> I'm kidding. Shut up. Um, <laughs> she was awarded the Boston Globe All Scholastic for cross country, which was a huge honor in high school sports in Massachusetts. Unsurprisingly, Maura had her choice of colleges to attend in the fall. She recruited... Re- Mm-hmm. She received recruitment letters from very prestigious schools, including Harvard and Yale, but ultimately chose West Point and was awarded a congressional nomination from Ted Kennedy, the senator of Massachusetts at the time. It's like everything is going. It's she's like a shooting star. You yeah. know what I mean? Like she everything is going right for her. Well, and like who, you know, I mean, I know to get into West Point, you have to have like a letter from a senator and stuff like that. But like. Unless you're doing something like that, your senators do not know who the fuck the high school students in their area are. 
like to yeah. be known, you know, like at least known enough to write a letter. I mean, at least they've heard your name. You know what I mean? Like, that's pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. It's big. It's big. It's big. So we're going to talk about West Point. The first summer at West Point is reportedly the most difficult time. It's called the Beast Barracks and is very physically and mentally challenging. And sometimes Julie would visit her younger sister to smuggle her cookies. And one time, <laughs> it's adorable. Supportive um, sister. Yeah. Yes. Here's some cookies. Stop crying. <laughs> One time she found her sister crying alone in the barracks and Julie was worried about Mara, but like most things, Mara was ultimately able to make it through the summer and began to find her place in the classroom and on the track. While in school, she met another student named Bill who goes by Billy Roush or Rosh. I think Roush. Yeah. The two began dating and Mara seemed to be happy with him. Unfortunately, in Mara's sophomore year, she made a bad decision that put her spot at West Point in jeopardy. So they went to a trip to Fort Knox. And they were shopping at the Post Exchange, and she was with a friend. And Mara stole about $5 worth of makeup. And she was caught and handed, or had to stand in front of the Honor Society. God bless it. Stand in front of the Honor Academy at the school, who would decide what her punishment would be. Julie asked Mara why she stole the makeup. I mean, she had the money. She didn't have to steal it. But Mara didn't have an answer, and she was just embarrassed about what she had done. Hmm. I wonder, I mean... I know of people that it's like the thrill of that, like stealing something small, maybe. I don't, can I get away with it? I don't know. I can't understand. But like, are those people like as embarrassed as she was about it? I mean, I don't know. Maybe they are embarrassed when they get caught, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. Cause it just doesn't make sense. Uh Uh-uh. Especially if you do have the money for it. Right. I I don't know. I just don't understand it. I mean, I don't know. Me now versus me at 19, very different people. So I I don't know. You know, I don't know if you can, we can make sense of it. But yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't know. After a cadet's second year at West Point, they are required to take an oath, which would obligate them to spend five years serving military duty. And with her impending sentence for stealing and committing commitment to the military coming up, Mara decided to withdraw from West Point and enter the nursing program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Looking back at this time in Mara's life, some wondered if she committed the small theft to leave West Point without being considered a quitter. And though Mara was doing well at school, West Point was an extremely demanding school and it was a place designed to test its students in every way possible. And maybe she just made the decision that it just wasn't the right place for her. Yeah. Or I mean, five years in the military is a big commitment. It really is. Yeah. Like, but I just wonder because, I mean, I did not know this because I've never been like, I really want to go to West Point, you know, mm-hmm. but she had to have known that before even yeah. going there. Yeah. I wonder if, but I mean, Billy went there too. I was thinking too, like, I wonder if getting there, you know, getting involved with a guy, she was like, this isn't, I don't want to just be in the military for five years. Like I want to maybe follow this through. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he's there too. So that means he's going to be in the military. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's hard enough, I would say, when one, you know, person in a relationship is in the military. But when you both are, you know, yeah. you're just both at the mercy of like where they tell you to go. And yeah. I don't yeah. Know. I just, I don't know. I mean, maybe it was something that like all these other things were kind of like she felt like decisions made for her. Mm-hmm. That these were things that were like 
happening. And, you know, she was really good at sports and she was really academic. And, you know, maybe she felt pressure to do these like big things. And stealing something felt like something she had control over. Could be. It was a decision she made, you know? Yeah. Could be. I don't know. And there's no way of knowing because no. you can't, no one can ask her, you know? So, yeah. I know. So crazy. Mm-hmm. In the first semester of 2002, Maura transferred to UMass, continuing her previous major from West Point of Chemical Engineering. However, in the fall of 2002, she made the decision to change her major to nursing, seemingly following in her mother's footsteps. Maura and Bill continued dating long distance, and she was welcomed to the track team and made several close friends on the team. Despite being at a new school and being accepted into the nursing program, Maura still found herself in trouble. In the fall semester of 2003, she was placed on probation at UMass after she was caught using a stolen credit card number. The only charges on the credit card were for food, including deliveries from several nearby restaurants. The total of the charges were under $250, and the judge told Mara that as long as she stayed out of trouble for three months, they would take the incident off her record. She was never arrested, but a photo of her was taken by officers outside her dorm room. Hmm. And nobody seems to know why Mora did this. Again, she didn't need to. Right. I mean, she could buy her own food. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, I really, it boggles the mind. I have no idea. Because it seems these things are being brought up, and it's it, not at this point two incidences, but it seems out of character for her, right? Like, why would she? She didn't need to, you know? Mm-hmm. But now we're kind of developing a pattern of behavior. But right. I don't, I don't know. And also, um, if you look up pictures of Maura Murray or if you've seen her or anything, she's usually very, um, well, she's always got her hair up in a ponytail. I mean, she looks very, you know, athletic. She's always got a big smile on her face. Like, she always looks pretty happy. But the photo that, like, the police officers took a photo of her outside her dorm room. And it's a very solemn-looking photo. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I would imagine, like, you're not going to be, like, unless you're Jody Arias, like, you're not going to be, like, <laughs> like, try to make it a glamour shot or something. Right. But she just looks different. Yeah, I mean, and that could, it could be just because of her getting caught, like, getting busted for doing this. But it, maybe it was an indicator that something else was going on in her life. Like, she had something really weighing her down because she does look very upset in the photo, which again, understandable because she just got caught, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's like also, you know, now we have two instances of her doing something very, very out of character. Mm -hmm. So is it out of character or now, like you said, are we starting kind of a habit? Is something in her life changing and we're seeing it kind of coming out sideways, you know? Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, this is just the beginning of, like, a lot of really weird stuff. Yes. I would say some erratic behaviors. Yeah. So, in order to earn some extra money, Mora had two on-campus jobs. She worked in an art gallery, and she was dorm security. On Thursday, February 5th, 2004, Mora began her shift at 7 p.m. at the front desk of the Melville dorm. 
She was there to help check in guests, assist students who'd been locked out of their rooms, and to verify the IDs of the students who lived in the dorms. At 7.17 p.m., she called her boyfriend, Billy. She talked to him for 20 minutes. She called him again, talking to him for six minutes at 9.56 p.m. At 10.10, Mara called her sister, Kathleen, talking to her for almost 30 minutes. Kathleen later told police that this conversation was unremarkable. There was nothing out of the ordinary. Mara wasn't acting strangely. It was just like a run-of-the-mill conversation. At 12.07 a.m., while still at the dorm working, Mara called Billy again, and she talked to him for seven minutes. Around 1 a.m., one of Mara's supervisors was notified that Mara was extremely upset and having a, quote, breakdown. The supervisor, Karen Moyette, arrived at Melville Hall to find Mora sitting behind the desk completely zoned out. Karen tried to ask her what was wrong, but Mora wasn't answering. She told her that it was okay if she left work now, that she'd walk her back home. And Mora didn't move. She didn't make any attempt to, like, collect her stuff. She just sat there. Like, mm-hmm. it almost sounds like a catatonic state or something. Like, mm-hmm. it's very strange to not respond to somebody. Right. Especially when, I mean, she's talking directly to her and she's like, hey, you know, you can go ahead and go now. Like, mm-hmm. that's very eerie, I would yeah. think. To, yeah. And she probably, I mean, you would think like she's definitely going to be standing close to her because it's just the two of them in this conversation or whatever. But she's right. probably like touching her shoulder and being like, are you okay? Like, and she's just not acknowledging her at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would think that she probably, you know, hey, everything okay? Like. Nothing. Yeah. So Karen tried to ask Mora what was wrong, but all Mora could say was, my sister, my sister, and she didn't elaborate. So when they got back to Kennedy Hall where Mora lived, Karen offered to walk her up to her room and hang out with her for a little bit until she felt better. And Mora thanked her, but she said she was fine. She had a roommate upstairs who she could talk to. Karen even suggested that Mora go to an on-campus counselor but Mora declined. Reportedly, Karen also gave Mora her phone number and offered to bring her Dunkin' Donuts in the morning. She told Mora goodnight and watched as she walked into her dorm. And she had no idea that Mora had lied to her about having a roommate. She actually lived in a single room. It's just very strange. It is very strange. And the thing about, okay, so she talked to her sister at 1010 that evening. Mm-hmm. And it's not There's, till one o'clock. Yeah, three hours later, something hits her. Mm-hmm. And Kathleen says, we didn't talk about anything crazy. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Did she mean another sister? Because she's got two. Did she mean Julie? That's true. But I guess we don't... We don't know. We know that nothing happened to Julie either. Yeah. I mean, but it's yeah. just it's just so strange. It is, yeah. And this is the last time that Karen ever saw Mora. For quite some time, it was widely speculated what happened during Mara and Kathleen's phone call. Many people believed that because all she said was my sister, that something had upset her from the phone call. A Mora family, a Mora, a Murray family member said that Kathleen had struggled with alcohol addiction and it was possible that she may not remember the conversation. During the oxygen special, Kathleen told interviewers that her husband had recently picked her up from rehab and then driven her straight to a liquor store. And she said it could have been hearing that, thinking that her sister had relapsed, that maybe Mara got so upset that night. But again, 
there was several hours in between the phone call and when she kind of lost it. Mm-hmm. And I, like, I don't know. And Kathleen says, you know, I guess, I guess if she was incredibly drunk, it's possible that she wouldn't remember the conversation, but you would think she would be like, look, I was really drunk. I don't know. But yeah, she says they didn't talk about anything crazy. Yeah. And again, I just keep going back to the amount of time that passed in between. Like maybe it was just like she was thinking about it and thinking about it. I do wonder what she talked to Billy about Mm -hmm. the second time. Yeah. Or whatever time. In between like the 12 12 o'clock one. But I don't know. Yeah. And why don't we have that information? Like, well, Billy's not talking to anybody. Yeah. Surely he gave a statement or something. The police some information. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like there's not a lot of... Because we just have no idea what she talked to anybody about that night. Mm -hmm. Which is very frustrating. Yes. The next day, February 6th, which is a Friday, classes at UMass were canceled due to a snowstorm. On Saturday, February 7th, Fred drove to UMass. At the time, Fred was working away from home in Connecticut and was staying at a hotel. Because of this, he was much closer to Amherst. That prior week, Fred withdrew $4,000 from his bank account, saying that it was intended to buy Mara a new car. Julie said that her father was old school and liked to deal in cash. He said that they went shopping around Amherst looking at used vehicles. The 1996 Saturn that Mora drove was in decent shape, but Fred said it wasn't running very well. So they had narrowed it down to two vehicles, but ultimately made the decision not to rush and that Fred would come back down the next weekend. At 3.21 p.m., Mora called Julie to talk about the cars they found and which one was her favorite. And she told her that she and Fred were going to dinner that night. And this was the last time that Julie ever spoke to her sister. Hmm. Later that evening, Fred, Mora, and her good friend Kate Markopoulos went for dinner and drinks at the nearby Amherst Brewing Company. At dinner, Mora and Kate decided they were going to head to a party afterwards at a dorm room on campus. The girls and Fred stopped by the liquor store to grab a few things for the party, and they dropped Fred off at his hotel. Mora took his new Corolla and drove herself and Kate back to campus uh, to the party at Sarah Alfieri's dorm. Sarah was a friend of Mora's, and um, she also had a job at the art gallery. There are conflicting stories about this party. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Some say that the room was packed, while others say there were just a few people there. That doesn't make any sense to me how if you went to the party, yeah, you would know. But I mean, the only other option that I can think of is, are we talking different times of the party? Like mm-hmm. sometimes when you first get there, it's kind of like, you know, some people are coming in, not, you know, some people like to make a late appearance. Yeah. So if it's later in the night, maybe it was packed. I don't know. But right. Yeah, that's true. But you would also like think that the police would narrow that down. Like, okay, and what time were you there? Okay, well, these people were... Like, it's just very, like, why is there so much confusion around every single thing? Yeah, I don't know. So frustrating. Uh Unfortunately, both Kate and Sarah have said in interviews just after the disappearance and throughout the years that they don't recall exactly who was there. I mean, I get that if you... Like, you as one person might not know every single person that shows up to a party, right? Right. But once you as law enforcement go through and talk to everybody, you should be able to name everybody unless it's this big open party where everybody on campus is just coming by. Right. You know, but normally, like, even if 
Like it's my party and I invite you and you invite a friend that I don't know. I don't know that person, but you know that person because they came with you. So then later when everybody says, you know, police say who all was at your party? I'm like, well, Tori was there and she brought a friend. And then you would talk to Tori and Tori would say my friend's name was X. Like, yeah. Why do we not have that? I cannot tell you and I do not know. Yeah. The girls enjoyed drinking, music, and socializing at the party. Around 1 a.m., Sarah had passed out or fallen asleep while the party continued around her. Around 2.30 a.m., Kate and Mara decided to leave. Some sources say that Mara told people that she was going to head back upstairs to her dorm, which didn't make sense because Laura, Mara lived in a different dorm. But I mean... Well, everybody's drinking. Yeah. And she's probably incredibly confused. Yeah, for sure. Like. I mean, she just meant she was going to her dorm. Like, yeah. Okay. Different building, whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Kate said that Mora insisted on taking her father's car back to his motel. Kate said that she told Mora to wait until morning, you know, just go back to your room. But Mora continued to insist. Kate left for her dorm room and Mora got into her father's car. There are conflicting rumors about whether the two girls left the party with a male. Some people say they saw this. Some people don't think so, but there's that. At 3.30 a.m., Mora crashed her dad's car into a T-section of road just outside of the UMass campus. At 3.33 a.m., police arrived on scene and found Mora with the vehicle that was totaled. An accident report uh, that was shared by Julie reported that a UMass police cadet was standing by. According to the UMass website, police cadets are paid non-sworn student employees who have an interest in law enforcement or who want to pursue a career in law enforcement. It's unclear if the cadet just happened upon the accident scene or if he was possibly already in the car with Mora. Because remember, some people said she left with a guy. So, But the thing about that whole story is they have Kate still. Mm-hmm. She's not missing. Wouldn't she have been like, no, we were by ourselves? Or yes, we had this guy with us. Yeah, exactly. And Mora had left her cell phone at the party, so she couldn't call the police. But that doesn't mean, I mean, if other people saw it, they might have called police. Yeah. Or if, I mean, did Kate have her cell phone? Or, you know, like. But she went to her dorm. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I don't know. But if this guy was already with Mora, he could have called police too. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. It just, it doesn't, I don't know. According to the same report, the accident was determined to be, quote, due to operator inattention. Mora was not given a ticket. She wasn't given a sobriety test or any medical attention. Hmm. Why in the world? This is a college student who crashed a car at 3.30. At 3.30 in the morning, morning, who's obviously been drinking, and you're not going to give her a sobriety test? Mm -hmm. What is happening? I know. She should have gotten a ticket for that. Yeah. Or something. Mm -hmm. She got into the passenger seat of the tow vehicle who dropped her off at her father's hotel. So by this point, it's early Sunday morning. It's still dark outside uh, when Mora gets to the hotel. She was in the lobby for a while because she didn't have access to her father's room. Finally, she was able to get in his room and used his phone to call her boyfriend at 5.38 a.m. Later that morning, she admitted to her dad that she'd wrecked his car. Fred was understandably upset. I don't understand why it took her so long to tell him about it. Maybe she was just upset and was like, oh God, I don't want to tell him. I don't want to tell him. I don't want to tell him. But you would think. Yeah. You have to. Like, 
Yeah. I mean, you know, it's going to yeah. come out. You got to tell him. Yeah. And her first thought was to call Billy mm-hmm. when she gets up to the room. I don't know. Yeah. Because you're not going to be able to hide it. He has to know. Mm-hmm. And it sucks, but you just got to say it. Yep. Yeah. Both he and Julie said that Mara was much more upset and disappointed in herself than anyone was with her. Fred found that insurance would cover the vehicle and provide him with a loaner car. That afternoon, he dropped Mara back off at her dorm. She was still visibly upset, and this would be the last time that Fred ever saw his youngest daughter. Hmm. That's sad. Yeah, it's really sad. That evening, Mara worked a shift at the art gallery and then retrieved her cell phone from Sarah. She checked her voicemail at 8.26 p.m. and called her father later. They spoke about her picking up accident forms from the wreck that morning. She promised she'd get them tomorrow and give him a call. Sometime after midnight, Maura used her dorm computer to make several searches for directions to Burlington, Vermont, and other locations in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. She also had several searches for pregnancy terms, which were later explained by a nursing assignment she had to define certain pregnancy terms and send them to the other students. So there was like a lot of speculation. Yeah, people kind of went wild about that. And they're like, and she was pregnant. But yeah, it's literally, it was just a class assignment. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it's like you have these little things that kind of lean one way or the other. And it's like, Okay, if she's going to take the time to do a class assignment, especially like late at night, see, it doesn't seem like she's planning to go anywhere, you know? Right, right. But I don't know. Around 4 a.m., she submitted her homework online and finished her computer work. That afternoon, now Monday, February 9th at 12.55 p.m., she called a condo owner in Bartlett, New Hampshire. Mora and her family had stayed at this location before. The call lasted approximately three minutes and Mora did not book anything. At 1 p.m., she sent an email to her boyfriend, Billy, that said, I love you more, stud. I got your messages. But honestly, I didn't feel like talking to much of anyone. I promised to call today, though. Love you, Mara. Hmm. It's interesting that they emailed. Yeah. But I don't know. I guess text wasn't as big then. Right. So never mind. T9. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. I was going to say, and this is just a theory because, like, I think if anybody is familiar with the case, you know that nobody knows, obviously, right? But right. let's say that she did decide to leave of her own volition and just disappear into thin air. She could have been doing her homework to not raise any suspicion. Mm-hmm. That's true. Right? Like, To give okay. herself a head start, basically. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a possibility. I don't know. I'm just trying to like devil's advocate. Like, let's let's look at every option here. But it could have happened. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, definitely no avenues should be closed off at this point. Like, because we just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. At 1.13 p.m., Maura called a fellow nursing student to ask her if it was okay for her to return some clothing that she had borrowed from her. And the friend told her not to worry about it. I mean, this girl was not worried about getting her clothes that day. So I feel like this is something that leans toward the, she knew she was leaving. Yeah. Because she was like very, very adamant that she returned this clothing. And the girl was like, you can just do it later. It doesn't have to be right now. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. At one twenty-four p.m., Morris sent an email to her professor stating that there had been a death in her family and she was having to leave campus unexpectedly. 
There was no death in the family. At 2.18 p.m., she called a ski resort in Stowe, Vermont, and the call lasted for just one minute. At 2.18 p.m., she left a voicemail for Billy. Mara's friend, Erin O'Neill, was the one who she'd called earlier about returning the clothes she'd borrowed. And during the call, she told Erin that there was a family emergency, something having to do with her sister, and she wanted to bring the clothes back. And Erin wasn't concerned at all. She ended up falling asleep in her dorm room. Dorm room. Around 3 p.m., she heard a knock on her door, but ignored it and went back to sleep. And later, she found a bag of clothing outside the door, and it seemed that Mara had dropped off the clothing. See, all of that, especially with her saying, because she told the professors that she had a death in her family, which we know was untrue. It did not happen. Mm -hmm. But then she's telling her friend that they had a family emergency and it had something to do with her sister, which are two very different stories. Yeah. Because I would think like a family emergency and if you don't give any details, that's not something that somebody's going to pry into. Yeah. But if she's a friend of hers and she says, oh, there's been a death in the family, then they're like, well, who was it? You know, where are you going? Like that kind of stuff. Exactly. It sounds to me like she was trying to cover her tracks at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. At 3.15 p.m., Mara withdrew $280 from her bank account in an ATM. This left her with under $20 in her bank account. There's a surveillance video and photos of Mara at the ATM, but nothing appears out of the ordinary. At 3.43 p.m., Mara purchased $40 worth of liquor from a nearby store. Julie noted that on the receipt from the liquor store, there was a line titled Can and Bots for the amount of $3.95. In the state of Massachusetts, cans can be redeemed for $0.05 apiece. This would have meant that Mora had come into the store with 79 cans. And Julie said this was strange to her. At some point, Mora picked up the accident forms that she discussed getting with Fred. At 4.37 p.m., she checked her dorm room phone voicemail from her cell phone which lasted for about four minutes. This was the last outgoing cell phone activity found on Mora's phone. Around 5 p.m., Mora received a call that pinged within 20 miles of Londonderry, New Hampshire, just north of the New Hampshire border with Massachusetts, and it's unknown who this call was from. Mm. Why? Yeah. Yeah, how can you not know? Shouldn't that be an easy answer? You would think, like, Look it up. Right. (laughs) Like, unless this person somehow hid their phone number and the police can't trace it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. There's just so much that's like, well, this happened, but we don't know why this happened. But everybody says it didn't happen too. So we just don't know. Like, yeah. Well, which fucking one is it? I know. And I mean, the police aren't, we don't know everything that they've looked into. Are they looking into it? Have they looked into it? Like, you know what I mean? Like, sometimes it's like, well, uh, we don't know who that is and we're not going to, we're not, we're not even going to go down that route. Yeah. We just, we don't know what we don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so frustrating. Yeah. Mara's big sister, Julie, along with the rest of her family, continues to fight for her. Julie answered a, cu- a few questions for Madison over email um, to give us a little bit more insight onto the points of her sister's life and her disappearance. And um, big thanks to Julie for doing that. We definitely Mm -hmm. appreciate it. Madison asked Julie what her thoughts were about Mora's minor theft from West Point. 
And she said, yes, West Point is very demanding by design, especially the first two years. It tests you physically, emotionally, and intellectually. It is certainly not for everyone. Mora had no problem with the physical and academic side, but the military part was just not something for her, in my opinion. Cadets have to take an oath after their second year and commit to five years of military service. I believe in my gut the petty theft of under $5 worth of makeup was a way to avoid having to make that commitment of active duty service a way out. This type of honor violation would probably not have resulted in expulsion. And she says, I have many friends who did far worse and were not kicked out. They received hefty disciplinary actions. I think she also knew that too, and it impacted her decision. But like, that's at West Point. But then you have to wonder about the stolen credit card too. Like, Mm -hmm. what's, I I just, I really do wonder if it was like a, I can control this. This is, you know, something that I can control. I'm making this decision. Well, and I mean, it could very easily be too, because she's so structured in her life. And maybe Mm -hmm. this is like to your point, she's got to do everything by the book. Maybe she just wanted to like do something bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, like my kids are like that, you know, they go to, when they go to daycare, the, our daycare lady is, I mean, she's got a lot of structure there and, you know, kids, when they go to school and stuff like that, when they get home, they go buck wild. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's just like, they have to let that out, you know? Yeah. They're not made to be like, cooped up all day, basically, Mm -hmm. and behaving all day. It's hard for them. Yeah. I mean, who wants to do that anyway? Like, even as an adult, if I had to do that all day, every day, that Mm -hmm. would kind of suck. Like, you just want to unwind. And I don't, I don't unwind in the same way that if if this is true, I don't unwind by stealing credit card numbers. But you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. maybe that was an outlet for her or something where she was just like, it will afford. I want to be bad. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. Wow. Will afford. I want a bad baby. Uh, uh. Yep. All little kiddos are like, who's that? (laughs) I know. (laughs) That was like her only song, too. It really was. Yeah. Not a great song. Nostalgic, but. Yeah. Yeah. It's not my favorite song or anything, but. No. Do I listen to it? Yes. Of course you do. Yeah, sure. (laughs) I mean, you can't, cannot wave that. No. Regarding the phone calls that Maura made on the night that she was working at the dorm and got so upset. Remember, she'd had that call with her oldest sister, Kathleen, around 10 p.m. and then her boyfriend, Billy, later on. Mara didn't get upset until later in the evening. And Julie said, yes, she did have a conversation with Bill later on. I don't know exactly what was discussed. It could have certainly been upsetting to her, though. I don't rule that out. It is also possible that Mara was feeling like an empath to Kathleen and stayed strong for her on the 10 p.m. call, but then the weight of the relapse hit her later. I'm not sure. What I'm more curious about is what calls she made on the dorm phone system. I haven't seen those records. Mora shared a cell phone plan with Bill, so if she was talking to another guy, she wouldn't have used the cell phone she shared with Bill. That's an interesting aspect. That's very interesting. I didn't think about the dorm phones. But again, well, I guess she she's saying she hasn't seen the records. She's not saying right. That it's they not don't like they, they didn't look into it. Yeah, yeah, because I'm like the police should be able to know who it is that she talked to. Well, and they could very easily know. But yeah, it, I know that the police, with any active investigation or open investigation, they're not going to give the family everything. They're not going to give the public everything. So right. again, it's like we only have what we have. Yeah, but. It's incredibly frustrating because 
I think it's safe to say that all of us are armchair detectives and we're like, okay, but what, let me see all the evidence here, guys. And you know, at this point, it's been 18 years. Like, right. Like, give us something. Release a, yeah, release a little information because you could, the more time that goes on, the less people reliably remember. So like somebody could have seen something, heard something, you know, whatever, and then be like, this one piece of information might trigger that memory or something like, oh my God, it's Bardstown all over again. Oh my God. This is Bardstown. Right? <laughs> I was born. No, I'm not going to do the whole thing. Okay. 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 All right. So let's talk about the accident. At 7.27 p.m. that same night, Faith Westman called 911 to report that there was a car off the road just outside of her home in ha- I'm every time. Yeah. Haverhill, New Hampshire. I still think you're saying it wrong. I know I am. I think it's Haverhill. Haverhill? Mm-hmm. But I'm probably saying it wrong. Haverhill. Just because I feel very passionate about it. I feel confident. Mm. It's Haverhill. So it's probably like Hoover Hill or something crazy. <laughs> probably. Yeah. <laughs> it's Hoo Ha Hill, New Hampshire. I, yeah. I don't know how to say it. I don't know. Nope. She lived on Route 112 on the inside corner of the road, just as it is about to. It, so it's almost a 90 degree turn. Sharp, sharp, sharp curve. Yeah. I wonder how many people bust through that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's snowy. Mm -hmm. They just had that big snowstorm, so. Yeah. Especially, like, at night, if you're not expecting it. Like, yeah, there's a curve on one of the roads out by Miss KB's house, and poor guy had a fence along that curve Mm -hmm. for, like, 15 years. And, like, every two days, he was repairing the fence because somebody just went right through it. And then finally, he was like, fuck it. I'm not doing a fence anymore. Well, and they put up like 95 signs. It's uh-huh. like sharp curve ahead, turn here. Pay attention. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if it's wet and, you know, like I said, like the the conditions of the road, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. But, okay, so she said that the vehicle was traveling eastbound, but had ended up facing westbound in a ditch. She also said that she could see a man smoking a cigarette in the vehicle, and it wasn't a surprise that the vehicle had crashed there. The turn was very tricky, like we said, especially in the snow, and even more so with um, at night. So at 7.29 p.m., Sergeant Cecil Smith from the, they're going to make me do it every time, <laughs> Haverhill. 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 Police department was dispatched to the scene. Shortly after Faith's call, Butch Atwood pulls up by the wrecked vehicle in his school bus. He was returning from driving students home after a ski trip, and he saw the vehicle was damaged and stopped to speak to the female. He asked how she was, to which the female replied that she was okay, just shaken up. He said he didn't see any blood on her face and that she was shaking. He asked if she wanted him to call 911. Atwood said the female declined his offer, saying that she had already called AAA, but he knew that this was not true because there was absolutely zero cell service in the area. So even though she's got a cell phone and Mm -hmm. it works, it ain't going to make any calls. It's basically useless. Totally. It is a fancy paperweight at this Mm -hmm. moment. So Atwood just lived or lived just down the street and he was just down and across the street. And he parked his school bus in his driveway and called 911 from his house at 7.43 p.m. According to phone transcripts, Atwood told police that the vehicle hit a pine tree and that the driver was shaken up. He said that the airbag had deployed and that there was heavy damage to the car. Afterwards, Atwood reported saying, reportedly said that the female that he spoke with had her hair down, which Julie said was extremely odd because like we talked about before, she always 
always wore her hair up in a ponytail. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, there's sometimes where, I mean, I don't always wear my hair up in a ponytail, but like there's sometimes I can't find a ponytail or it breaks, but I feel like Mara, because she always, always, always wore it up. Surely she had extras on her. You know what I mean? Right. Like if you wear it up all the time, then you've got ponytails with you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure if you looked in my car, you could find bobby pins. Like I'm going to, you know what I mean? Like I just, some girls take that kind of stuff with them. Yeah, I forget it at the gym every day, so. Do you? Yes. That's, how, that's where they go. It's like socks. Like, where do they all go? Yeah. No idea. I don't, yeah. I'm sure that there are plenty, like, in the, I don't know, floorboard of my car somewhere or something, but yeah. So, he was shown pictures of Mara and said that the woman that he spoke with did not look like her. The Westmans, both Faith and her husband, Tim, witnessed Atwood's bus stopped by the accident. And contrary to what his wife had told dispatch earlier about there being a man in the vehicle smoking a cigarette, Tim said that he believed the small light was from a cell phone. But how would they, even if you see a small light and it's far enough away and you think that that light is the light of a cigarette, how can you tell that a man is smoking it? If it's so unclear that you don't even know what it is, how can you make out that it's a man? I don't know. Yeah. That just doesn't make any sense to me. I feel like that information is just, it's gumming up the works. You know Uh what I mean? Like, it's so unreliable that maybe it shouldn't have even been said. I don't know. Yeah. The Marats, who lived on the same side of the road that the vehicle was on further down, reported that they saw reverse lights from their window. At 710, an undisclosed witness left work and began driving home. While traveling down Swiftwater Road, a police SUV approached the witness from behind with its emergency lights on. The SUV passed the witness and continued down the road. The witness remembered seeing the number 001 on the back of the SUV. The witness turned, then turned onto Route 112 and saw the same SUV with its emergency lights on. It reportedly pulled up behind them again and passed them. Once the witness reached the site of the accident on 112, They saw the 001 police SUV parked nose-to-nose with a dark vehicle. The description fits the dark green Saturn that Mara was driving. According to blogs, this witness's story has been corroborated multiple times with the Mari... I did it too. The Murray family. It's hard. Mara and Murray are very close. They are, yes. At 7.46 p.m., a police cruiser marked 002 arrived at the crash scene. This vehicle was driven by Sergeant Cecil Smith. Both Atwood and Faith Westman said that it was a cruiser, not an SUV. When Smith arrived on the scene, he found the dark green Saturn locked and abandoned. At 7.50 p.m., another witness drove by the scene and saw the police cruiser marked 002 and two people standing beside the vehicle. It's unknown who she saw. There was approximately seven minutes between the time that Atwood had spoken to the driver of the vehicle and Sergeant Smith arriving on the scene. And in that short time, Maura Murray disappeared. Who did Atwood see, though? Because he says this was a person who had her hair down and looking at pictures of Maura, it didn't look like her. And he never spoke. He never said that there were two females. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So was somebody still in the car and this other person was out? I don't. Yeah, I don't know. But, I don't understand it. Yeah. And I feel like if we're going to get into 
because some people have said, and of course, next the next episode, we're going to leave you on a little bit of a cliffhanger here, but mm-hmm. next episode, we're going to talk theories. Yeah. But I wonder if she was abducted, would she have locked her car? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's true. Unless she had gotten out and was going to walk to a gas station, but their neighbor's close. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Out in the middle of nowhere, I don't know that I'd even think to lock the car. I'd just be like... Well, you don't ever think to... I mean, for the longest time, you... I don't believe in it. Uh, Exactly. I also don't want to get locked out, you know? Because if that's my only, like, in the snow, that's my only place to be, pretty much. Mm. Like, I'd be afraid to get locked out. Yeah. I don't know. But, like, where could she have gone, though? I know. I know. And there were people kind of keeping an eye on what was going on, it seemed like. Yeah. I mean, multiple people saw not the crash itself, maybe, but they knew they had eyes on her. Uh Uh-huh. They called the police. They're, you know, like, butch from where he was. Like, he went home and called, and then he, you know, was looking out. Like, yeah, that's just crazy. And you would think, too, I mean, this is February. It's snowy. If she had walked into the woods, wouldn't you see the footprints? Mm Mm-hmm. And it just, it literally feels like, I mean, the only other option that I can think of that makes the most sense to me, if it's not one of the other, you know, other theories, is aliens. No. Right? I don't trust them. The fourth kind, abduction. Yep. Yep. Never know what they're up to. Mm Mm-mm. Shifty little bitches. Yeah. What is that one movie, Dark Skies? Oh, my God, that movie Uh, freaks me the fuck out. Same. Yeah. I know. Again, we can't rule anything out. I just want to cover all the bases. I just, I don't want to overlook something. I think that's responsible. I think it's responsible. I do too. Yep. And I don't know if anybody's ever considered that, but. Probably not because it's stupid. But again, <laughs> you know, we just got to cover all the bases. I'm a very good investigator and I just want to put all of my cards on the table here. One of these days it is going to be an alien and you're going to be very vindicated. See, <laughs> I hope to God it's not me though, because I'm scared. No, oh, it'll be you. Uh, you're asking for it i have nothing to give the alien population i'm not smart true not very pretty so (laughs) thank you you might be Um, safe yeah i am not top quality goods here so Mm -hmm. don't don't get me yeah yeah that's true yeah (laughs) saving grace isn't it (laughs) it didn't take much to well i didn't even have to you you already believed it yeah. I was like, I didn't even have to convince you, but you're like, no, I get it. No, I totally know. Yeah, they definitely want something better than that. And they deserve better <laughs> than that, you know? Are you going to go to a restaurant and order a $3 steak? Mm. Tougher than a $2 steak? I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. Mm-mm. It's true. You want filet mignon? You're damn right. <laughs> and I am not, that's not me. No. But anyway, yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's it, guys, for this episode. Part one. So come back next time for lots of theories. Yeah. Let us know what you guys think happened. Absolutely. Yeah. And are you like, this is one of those cases that like so many people are obsessed with. And there are, I mean, there are entire podcasts just devoted to this case. Just this case. Absolutely. I mean, and then the, the oxygen special, I think it's six, six parts. It's six parts. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot to cover here. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know. Yep. Well, we love you guys. We love you. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. 
Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. 